Hi, and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy Class 21, where we dive into the strange and evocative world of Baron Edward Morton Drax Plunkett Lord Dunsany. Watch out for the Dragon of Romance. Today we begin the 20th century, and we will be in the 20th century for the rest of the semester. Um, today we begin with the, you must admit, rather unusual works of the man with my favorite name of, of all British authors, Baron Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett Lord Dunsany. <laughs> I'll say it again. Baron Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett Lord Dunsany. His name was John Plunkett. His title is Lord Dunsany, and he was a baron, so you put that at the beginning, and then he had three middle names, John Morton Drax, D-R-A-X. Um, I defy you to find somebody with a cooler name than that. Uh, anyway, our friend Lord Dunsany, which is the name he published under and was his title, um, uh, he uh, was born in 1878 and died in 1957. Um, the majority of his sort of most uh, of his most famous fantasy works were in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the Book of Wonder is published in 1912. Okay. Um, he was, uh, Lord Dunsany was an Anglo-Irish peer. This was not just a pen name. He actually was Lord Dunsany. Uh, uh, and uh, he, was a, he was a good friend of, of Yeats. Um, those of you who have studied Yeats will perhaps be less surprised um, or not be very shocked to hear that Dunsany and Yeats were friends. Uh, one can see certain similarities uh, in the way that they think, I think, in some ways. But anyway, we're not going to talk about that because we're not going to read Yeats. But um, there is a, a kind of a popular misconception that Tolkien essentially invented the fantasy genre, that like the, the, the fantasy genre in the 20th century begins with Tolkien. In one sense it does, in that it was really Tolkien and the popularity of Tolkien's works that really brought the fantasy genre really sort of to the public attention, but um, it, he didn't invent it. And there were many writers who came before him in the generation, in the couple generations prior to him, um, who were very influential um, and whose works he was following in the footsteps of. Lord Dunsany uh, is one of the biggest of those. So I would like to start our discussion of Lord Dunsany, of course, uh, with some comments about the Black Bull of Norway. S seriously, seriously, I do. Because this... this <laughs> okay, okay, no, 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 I have a good reason for this. Because I said previously that, I, that the Black Bull of Norway was my favorite of the fairy tales, and you laughed at me when I said that. But now, who's laughing, I ask you? Because... If you, like, if you don't like the Black Bull of Norway, I'm guessing you didn't like this book, right? Because all of the things that make the Black Bull of Norway so weird and so different from the other fairy tales uh, are like here to the power of seven uh, in Lord Dunsany's stories. And so I want to pause back and sort of look at that, talk about a couple of the things that we can see in, you know, using the Black Bull of Norway as, in this sense, a kind of a transition tale into what we're looking at here. Remember, we, I mentioned before, one of the things that's striking about the Black Bull of Norway is the, is the 
lack, not complete lack, but striking lack of logical transitions. We don't know why this next thing happens. We don't know how people discover, like, you know, why does she have to climb the glass mountain? Where did she find the dude who makes iron shoes? How does that, I mean, I guess I could see how that would help climb a glass mountain, but, um, you know, like, what's up with that? Like, how do we know who's the bull and is he the prince? And I guess so. All of these things that are sort of confusing if you're just trying to follow along um, with this thing as a logical plot. But what it does have is... It is a powerful story which works with lots of really powerful and evocative sort of primal ideas. No, we don't understand who the bull is and where he comes from if what we're looking for is logical backstory, right? If we want the whole background of these characters and we want to understand their motivations and why they're doing certain things, those questions are never answered in this story. But what we do get are these images, are these ideas, these concepts. We have the fearful and uncertain strength of the bull and his blackness, his danger and yet his strength, and she is frightened when she sees him and she is worried, um, but then she, he seems not so bad and he provides for her magically and brings her to his brother's castles and there's no point at which, you know, we don't get you know, this sort of like Disney montage of her and the bull like becoming friends and falling in love, right? We don't get this. Um, we, we're given no, we're not given that kind of transition. All that we know is when he takes off to fight the devil somewhere for some reason, to engage in this, in this battle, which appears now to be a battle of good versus evil, she is rooting for him. And she is worried about him. Oh, and that battle is also accompanied by an apparently arbitrary prohibition which she must obey or face separation from him. And, through no terrible fault of her own, she breaks that prohibition and is separated from him. Again, does this make sense? Is, are, you know, are we following along with this as a story? No, not exactly, not really, not literally, not in the way that we normally follow along with what we consider normal stories. Uh, from our perspective, but we can kind of see what's happening here. Oh, wait, and I skipped the magical fruit, which is given to her, one piece of fruit, each more rich and each more powerful at each castle that she goes to, and she's told that it will help her in her time of greatest need. How? We don't know, right? Again, that's exactly the kind of gap that's never filled. Then the glass mountain, almost impossible to climb, which now separates her from the black bull, which apparently, she wants to be reunited with. And we have first his struggle, undefined, with the devil, and now her task, not laid upon her by anybody, to go and meet him, to go and join him. Then we get the bloody shirt. When she finally gets, serves, and works for the iron shoes, and then crosses the mountain, and then she has to wash these bloody shirts, which I guess are his shirts, which seem, maybe, to have something to do with his battle. Again, it's a shirt. This is, not, this is not washing away the blood. This is not about the exculpation of guilt, right? This is his own blood, presumably. The blood on his shirt is likely to be... You know, remember, you know, Lady Macbeth is worried about her hands, not her garments, right? When it's, when it's blood, somebody else's blood. Um, anyway, so he's got these shirts which can't be cleansed. His blood, which can't be washed away, or rather can only be washed away by her, and by her are quickly washed away. 
But then the separation, the giving of the three precious fruits. And what does she give? You know, these things, these, these precious magic fruits, which are to save her from her greatest need, which are used just for the privilege of calling out to him by night. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story, but it's a different kind of story. Okay, and it works on a See, okay, I'm tempted to say it works on a kind of a subconscious level. I paused before saying this because I'm not talking about Freud here, and I don't know how to use language which isn't weighted in exactly that way because I don't think... Now, there's no question, of course, um, that uh, Freud and his friends would have a lovely time with this story. This would be... I, 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 I can't imagine this wouldn't be Sigmund Freud's favorite story from the Red Fairy book also. <laughs> though I suspect for rather different reasons uh, than, it's, than it's mine. Um, but it's all in how we relate to it. We were, we were looking before about sort of what the fairies do and how magic works in these fairy stories, and sometimes it seems to be a pretty clear moral mechanism, like with the three, three dwarfs, right? You are a good person. You have shown, you have proven yourself virtuous in these ways, so we are going to use our magic to sort of manifest and bless that goodness which you have, that seems relatively straightforward. But then in other places we see what I think I called before, like, the, you know, these, these sort of rough edges where it's not really obvious why, like, why you wave the sword over the duck to turn her back into a queen. It's not clear. Well, the, the, the Black Bull of Norway is like all rough edges. None of it is exactly really clear. It's not even obvious exactly how much of it is magic per se or where, you know, there's certainly not this, it's a normal story with normal people, except there's a magician or except the magic happens, then a fairy comes in. There's, there is no clear framework um, in the Black Bull of Norway. With that prep, preparation, of course, Lord Dunsany uh, is more of this, and I think, I hope, that thinking back for a second to the Black Bull of Norway will help us as we approach Lord Dunsany. I want to start with his first story, The Bride of the Man Horse. And I'm going to ask you some fairly simple questions, which I trust you will have no problem answering. My first question, why does his mother sigh? Why does his mother sigh? We're told this. This is an easy question to answer. I'm not serious, by the way. Uh, Marta, go ahead. See, I, sometimes I've been accused of like using sarcasm with insufficient cues to say when I'm being sarcastic, and I feel guilty about that. Uh, 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 yeah, I do need a little flashing sarcasm sign. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic about that. But anyway, Marta, go ahead. Well, I, I think, and I can only say I think because it's hard to tell sometimes, but um, I think it's because... His father and his father's father also went off to a journey, and she's like, oh, well, there he goes on his journey. Yeah, it's the answer to the question. We're given the answer. We get a whole paragraph answering this question, right? Because she sighs at the end of paragraph one. He took it, that is the horn, and strode away, and his mother only sighed and let him go. Now it is as if he is anticipating that we are going to wonder why the mother of our centaur friend is sighing, Right? And so, we get a whole paragraph of explanation. 
She knew that today he would not drink at the stream coming down from the terraces of Varpa Niger, the inner land of the mountains, that today he would not wonder a while at the sunset and afterwards trot back to the cavern again to sleep on rushes pulled by rivers that know not man. She knew that it was with him as it had been of old with his father and with Gum, the father of Jishak, and long ago with the gods. Therefore she only sighed and let him go. Cleared that right up, didn't it? What do we get here? Tell me what this explanation does. Yeah, Emily, go ahead. Um, it kind of makes more real everything about this that isn't real because he's giving you like here in this place with this history, you know, these people. I'm not gonna. I don't need to explain it. You know what I'm talking. About. <laughs> yeah, I, he. Dunsany uses names, right, to serve as explanations. Unexplained, incomprehensible names. Uh, It's like, why did she sigh? Well, because it was with him as with Goom, the father of Jishak. Duh, exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. Um, What does that do? How does, I mean, obviously it doesn't help in the traditional way of helping, right? We don't, we're not getting information here exactly, Taylor. It tries to make it seem as though this place has an established history, like Frank said. Yeah, yeah, we do see this sense of established history. We don't know what it is, right? And we're almost never told what it is. I love the descriptions, both here and in Thangobrin the, Ju- the Jeweler, of the cities that he passes through, right? We get these glimpses of these lands, and we know that there is this, but we have no idea, Right? And yet it's told in such a way that you kind of feel familiar with them, even though you know nothing about them. It's amazing. Beska? Um, in comparison to the, the culture as well that he's creating in a, uh, in a, in a you know, world-building sense, he's taking you immediately away from thinking about being one thing, <coughs> about knowing that in the time period it's written you now. I'm instantly grabbing you by the hair and whisking you away to this land. And this is what's, you know, this is the cultural means of this land. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that that image is really a pr- the, the grabbing by the hair. Of course, that's what's going to happen at the end of the story, is the person being grabbed by the hair. But yeah, that's, it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of happening to us at the beginning, right? The, this story, I think, especially, it's such a cool one to begin the collection. It's like the most uncompromisingly fantastical story in the whole collection. We get no foothold here. No foothold in the mundane world. Almost no way. The only foothold we get possibly is with the human beings on balconies watching him ride by, right? There are a couple times we get men in the kingdoms of men that he rides through and they're spooked and freaked out and they don't know. It's like, oh, the legendary man horse is riding through. We don't exactly know why they're bothered or or, it's not like we exactly can relate to them, but that's the only thing even resembling a foothold that we get here. Um, and that's, I don't know, that's cool. Mac? Well, I've always felt that uh, the, the technique of you know, holding back specific information makes the story much, much richer. And Lord Dunsany knows it better than anyone else I've ever read. He sure is good at withholding information. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no surfeit of information do we receive in any of these stories. It allows you to kind of fill in all the gaps with speculation, which is honestly, I think, much more fun than being in these details. It's like, 
for example, my personal favorite, the building of information, is the Tower of Tor. And like, if they, if you would, if, and he just says that foreigners can't change their laws. Their laws are bad, foreigners can't change them. But if we got like a lengthy description of here are the bad laws they have, <laughs> right. this is why they're so xenophobic, it would make everything so much more dull. Yes. Yes, but of course, it's not just the withholding of information. It's the it's the tantalizing giving of information. Like, if he didn't tell us that their law, like th- th- that aside, that that foreigners might come in and change their laws, which are bad. <laughs> right? I love the which are bad there. Right? Oh, just so fantastic, so cool, so cool. And I'm afraid that I'm going to be largely inarticulate when talking about Lord Dunsany. Um and I. Th- think I can defend theoretically my inarticulateness, which is what he does in these stories is something which I don't know any prose, I don't know any prose writer who does it better than this. Only poets that that I've ever read uh, can, can evoke and point to such rich and incredible things that he doesn't say, that he doesn't point to. It is the lack of information. It's the lack of description. And yet the richness of description. Um, no one, no prose writer have I ever found who is more capable of filling my head with ideas, though I don't know exactly what they are, uh, than Lord Dunsany. Um, and I think that actually to try to break down and say, no, let us contemplate exactly what ideas are being evoked in this moment would be not to destroy it, but you couldn't do it. It's, I, I think it's theoretically impossible to actually put into words what makes these things powerful. That's what he's doing, is transcending words, transcending um, this kind, that, that, that kind of storytelling. Marta, go ahead. Well, I, was just, I kind of got the same experience, especially with this story. Um, it was, it's almost more ex- like you have to experience it rather than read it. But, um, it's almost like it, it's almost visual more than just reading it. I love the part where he um, where he's galloping across all the different kingdoms with the horn in his hand, and it's it's and like you said, if you sit sit there and try to break down this world and try to make sense, you're you're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah. Look at where he points to that. My second question, of course, is so so who is Sheparok? Who is the horseman? The 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 the, the man horse? Well, look at the bottom of page two. We're we're told. About halfway down that paragraph at the bottom of the page there. He was the sworn companion of the wind. For joy he was as a song. The lightnings of his legendary sires, the earlier gods, began to mix with his blood. His hooves thundered. He came to the cities of men, and all men trembled. For they remembered the ancient mythical wars. And now they dreaded new battles and feared for the race of man. Not by Cleo are these wars recorded. History does not know them, but what of that? Not all of us have sat at historians' feet, but all have learned fable and myth at their mother's knees. And there were none that did not fear strange wars when they saw Sheparok swerve and leap among the public ways. So he passed from city to city. You see the contrast that he explicitly... We do get a foothold here. Cleo gives us a foothold. Who's Cleo? The Muse of History. The Muse of History. Yes, exactly. Um, not by Cleo are these wars recorded. This is not history. You can't tell the backstory because it's not there. What is this instead of history? Myth. This is myth. This is legend, which is not history. Um, and so here he's sort of pointing to, I think this is a moment in which we can see 
a little prompt, some sort of tenuous instructions to us as readers. If you're looking for history, if you're thinking, you know, if you're you're hoping to hear something told by Cleo, uh, don't, because you're not going to get it. That's not what's happening here. Um, Instead, myth and fable. So, So how do we respond to it? Yet in the blood of man there is a tide, an old sea current, rather, that is somehow akin to the twilight, which brings him rumors of beauty from however far away, as driftwood is found at sea from islands not yet discovered. And this springtide or current that visits the blood of man comes from the fabulous quarter of his lineage, from the legendary of old. It takes him out to the woodlands, out to the hills. He listens to ancient song. It's the top of page two there. That's how we read this story and this book. Because in our blood, there is a tide, an old sea current. And rumors of beauty come to us like driftwood from unexplored islands. There you go. I, so yeah, there are going to be lots of times when I, I'm just going like, to have to read uh, some of his sentences to try to explain, because I don't know that I can explain that exactly. Um, what do you think? What do you see here? Jordan? Um, I, I think it's, it, it's not entirely just the whole myth. <coughs> this does in many ways we're setting what, um, what the Black Belt Moe with plot. There's a lot of impressive stuff. It's like, and he took with him that playwright of the center. Like, which playwright of the center? That famous silver one was famous. So you remember when I was at the sea, golden one. I haven't really heard that one. <laughs> it makes you feel like there's, there's this, there is this history there. You should know it. Right, except Cleo's never told it, right? So you can't know it. But you wish you did. And you can still receive or perceive in your blood the driftwood from the islands of those legends, even though they're unexplored and you've never reached them. Um, who is Sambalene? Is the uh, princess or something? Yep. It's very simple. She dwelt, bottom of page three, she dwelt, said evening secretly to the bat, in a little temple by a lone lake shore. A grove of cypresses screened her from the city, from, Z- from Zretazula of the climbing ways, and opposite her temple stood her tomb, her sad lake sepulchre with open door, lest her amazing beauty and the centuries of her youth should ever give rise to the heresy among men that lovely Sambalini was immortal for only her beauty and her lineage were divine. There she is. She's real pretty. How pretty is she? Page four. Her beauty was as a dream, was as a song, the one dream of a lifetime dreamed on enchanted dews, the one song sung to some city by a deathless bird blown far from his native coasts by storm in paradise. That's how. Any questions? <laughs> I mean, I, what do you say? What do you say? I mean, you either have to... I, f- I feel, I know, you either have to say nothing or talk for hours. I mean, if I were to really sit down and try to explain that imagery, 
the imagery, like what her beauty is being compared to and how it's being described, I don't think I could do it in less than 15 pages on those two sentences. It's so, there's so much. I just love Lord Dunsany's prose style. Um, Though I'll make a request. Please don't ever try to emulate it. (laughs) Ever. Ever. Um, the the, the, the odds of catastrophic failure are like 98%. Uh, But his prose style is, I mean, it just sweeps over you like a tide. It is is, um, a fun exercise sometime when you have a couple hours to spare. Try diagramming one of his sentences. Um, Just fantastic. His adverbs. Man, this guy can use adverbs. Unbelievable. (laughs) What? (laughs) Bring it. I want to see. That'd be great. Right. Diagram his sentences. Now, what happens? What what happens at the end of this story? I, I say, what happens at the end of this story? As if much happens at the beginning or the middle. I mean, you could summarize the plot in one short sentence, Right? Centaur rides to the city, grabs girl by hair, rides off with her. Right? That's it. I mean, there's not a whole lot of events. So, what happens? He galloped with half-shut eyes up the temple steps, and only seeing dimly through his lashes, seized Sambalini by the hair, undazzled as yet by her beauty, and so hailed her away, and, leaping with her over the floorless chasm where the waters of the lake fall unremembered away into a hole in the world, took her we know not where to be her slave for all those centuries that are allowed to his race. Okay, that's what happens. Why are his eyes half shut? Why is she in a temple in the first place? Why does he seize her by the hair? Why is there a floorless chasm there in which the waters of the lake, why does nobody remember the waters that follow, that fall into the hole? Why not? And then the reversal at the end, what looks at first like a very violent rape, the kind of thing we might expect a centaur to do if we're coming from Greek mythology. This is the kind of thing centaurs do all the time, gallop in and grab women by the hair or try to, unless they they get ferociously slaughtered by the men who are trying to protect said women, (laughs) like Heracles or Perseus. Um, But then we get the, the unexpected reversal, to be her slave for all those centuries that are allowed to his race. He grabs her by the hair and hauls her off by force in order to be her slave. Fantastic. Fantastic. Just great. Um, Good, so I think we've reached some good conclusions about that story. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's move on. Uh, Actually, I want to jump to the last story in the collection. Actually, no, wait, I don't. Actually, first I want to to stop briefly by the distressing tale of Thangobrind the jeweler. By the way, one of the other things, one of the other things that Lord Dunsany does just incomparably well is come up with names for stories. I mean, how great are the names for these stories? I, I mean, the injudicious prayers of Pombo the idolater. The powerful inventions of the 
I, I just, they're all of them so good, Miss Cubbage and the Dragon of Romance. Uh, but first, the distressing tale of Thangobrind the Jeweler. And here, though, of course, there is much we could say about the distressing tale of Thangobrind the Jeweler. I, I want to just look at, at, at one passage, rather one figure, from near the end of that story, at the bottom of page 7. So, you know, the story up to this point is fairly simple and straightforward, I think. We have Thangobrin the, Je- the jeweler, who is a great thief, who has been hired to steal the great huge diamond that sits on the lap of the spider idol, Hlaw Hlaw. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, no, no real problems there. Oh, uh, wait, except why is he doing it? What's his price? A prince's soul. daughter's soul. The merchant prince's daughter's soul. <laughs> and I don't think he has very cheerful plans for the soul of the merchant prince's daughter. I think that it would be a bad thing for him to win. So anyway, uh, that is for her anyway. Um, okay, so, so anyway, so things are going along um, sort of fine, and he's uh, drugged the priests with his drugged honey and takes the very heavy diamond off and is trudging through the forest when he hears the soft and velvety steps behind him, which he suspects that he knows what that is, and of course turns out to be right, that it is Hlahla, the spider idol itself, coming in pursuit. And then we get the introduction of my very favorite character in this story, at the bottom of page seven. Uh, That is, the grim old woman whose house was night. And, okay, there watched him, apathetically, over the narrow way, that grim and dubious woman whose house is night. That grim and dubious woman whose house is night. Uh, Grim and dubious, I'm telling you. Watching him apathetically, the sudden introduction of the apathetic character. Thangobrind, hearing no longer the sound of suspicious feet, felt easier now. He was all but come to the end of the narrow way when the woman listlessly uttered that ominous cough. Well timed, Aaron, thank you. The cough was too full of meaning to be disregarded. Thangobrin turned round and saw at once what he feared. The spider idol had not stayed at home. Then begins the famous fight. <laughs> the sentence. And then began that famous fight upon the narrow way in which the grim old woman whose house was night seemed to take so little interest. <laughs> so good. And then they're fighting and the this, and this spider is, thinks it's all a horrible joke though it's to him grim earnest, that finally he is undone by the persistent laughter of Hlahla would being too much for his nerves. <laughs> and once more, wounding his demoniac foe, he sank aghast and exhausted by the door of the house called night at the feet of the grim old woman, who, having uttered once that ominous cough, interrupted no further with the course of events. What a fascinating character! The grim and dubious woman who coughs apathetically and takes no interest in what is happening and yet seems to be this central, in fact, this turning point. Because he's been being chased. It's only now, upon the introduction of the apathetic, though deeply meaningful, cough of the grim and dubious woman whose house is night. Um... This could be the story of a bunch of people who wrote fantasy for 
cheap periodicals at the beginning of the 20th century until we get the grim and dubious woman whose house is night coughing and looking on apathetically and taking no interest in the thing. Nobody else talks like that, man. Like, that is remarkable, remarkable. And, and such a, a strange but powerful context to this whole thing. Um, that is the context of this fight. And her apparent role in it, and yet her lack of intrusion. Jordan? Without ever really getting a dissolution of it, you almost feel like you know it. I'm sure she's some representation of death and fate of finality or something, and I have no idea why. I mean, like, coffins maybe is it like a vengeance whale or something? I, I used to get this feeling like you're familiar. Yes. Yeah. Many times do you, does one, I think, want to either connect a character to a particular myth or idea, a particular other story, or to an allegorical figure, but it almost never really works. Just to allegorize, I mean. Who is she? Is she just death or fate? And those are very plausible suggestions. Her house is night, after all. But it's hard to see why death or fate would be coughing meaningfully for instance. Kat, what do you think? Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting with him hinting at these characters that she could be deaf or um, pulling in the, the muse that we kind of know is it hints at us knowing these stories but we have forgotten them. Yes. And they feel like something we should have always known. That's probably why people are so fascinated by them. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. There is that sense we should know them. Not necessarily because we should have heard the stories or we should know the back history, because, you know, hey, Cleo doesn't know it, but but yeah, there's a sense of there's a sense of familiarity. Look at the last paragraph of Thangobrim the Jeweler. And the only daughter of the merchant prince felt so little gratitude for this great deliverance that she took to respectability of the militant kind and became aggressively dull and called her home the English Riviera and had platitudes worked in worsted upon her tea cozy and in the end never died but passed away in her residence. <laughs> that last dependent clause is something I found tremendously interesting and I can't figure out what it means. I was really hoping you could talk about it. What, but passed away in her residence? She never died but passed away in her residence. It's about the platitudes, I think. That is... There's a certain kind of person who doesn't die, but, or rather a certain context in which a person doesn't die, but they pass away in their residence, right? That is, it's, it seems to be, in, especially in the context of platitudes worked and worsted upon tea cozies, talking about sort of social euphemisms, right? Um, people don't die, they pass away, right? Um, and it seems to be talking about sort of, as, as, as a characterization, of the life that we're told she goes on to live in the English Riviera, respectability of the militant kind, and she became aggressively dull. Adverbs, adverbs. Um, yeah, yeah. We get this, at the end of this story, this juxtaposition with the mundane world, with our world, right? And we see this as the reaction of the merchant princess <coughs> whose life has been saved, I guess, 
by Thangobrind the Jeweler failing in his mission? Or whose soul has been saved? And she, remember, living in the English Riviera, an aggressively dull life is an act of remarkable ingratitude on her part, we're told. An excellent question. Presumably not the spider idol Hla Hla and his honey-licking priests, <laughs> right? Um, again, see, like, I'm, I really think it's a good idea not to think about Freud uh, when you read Lord Dunsany. I strongly recommend not thinking in psychoanalytical terms when you read Lord Dunsany. Um, yeah, yeah, Tara? Oh, uh, the thing that I keep thinking back to is that description of the fairy stories of like drawing out of the bottom or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The way that he resists, I think, the way that he resists simile and the way that his, um, his prose is so dense, so metaphorically dense, uh, is really amazing, like Slith dropping into the unreverberate blackness of the abyss. Uh, sorry, I could like repeat that phrase all day. In fact, I've been muttering it to myself all morning, the unreverberate blackness of the abyss. So... Cool. Yeah, yeah. I've been. That's why I've been by myself most of the morning for that reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, bring this stuff, the, this context, this especially this last paragraph of Thangobrind the Jeweler to Miss Cubbage and the Dragon of Romance, because in Miss Cubbage and the Dragon of Romance we get most explicitly this juxtaposition of the mundane world with the highly non-mundane world, with the world of romance, as he calls it. Now we have to be careful. He's using the word romance here in a different way, different from anything we've seen so far. Uh, modern people tend to use the word romance in one particular way and in a quite limited way. That is of or relating to mushy feelings and uh, I don't even know. I mean, yeah. Well, you know how modern people use the word romance. Um, if you're reading a romance... If a modern person is reading a romance, you're saying one particular thing, which everybody knows. If a medieval person is reading a romance, they're doing something quite different. Um, a romance was just, that was the other genre other than, like, the, uh, poetry is basically, a, a narrative poem is either a romance or an epic, basically. Romance is the other genre. By accident, see, one of the favorite themes of this kind of story of romances was love. 
Um, so kind of by accident, this becomes narrowed down over time until now romance is love and, uh, and a love story explicitly. Um, and, but anyway, romance, it, it was, they used it, well, they used it literally generically. It was a genre. Uh, of literature. Um, romance, by the way, is the word that was used to describe novels. That's, that was the generic term. That's what a novel was. It was a prose romance um, back in the 18th century when people were first, were first writing novels. But he's not using the word romance in either one of those senses here. It doesn't have anything to do with love, romance in the modern sense, but he clearly means something different and more than just romance in the medieval sense. That is, that genre of stories, uh, <laughs> of course, defining rom medieval romance as like that genre of stories which is not epic is like such a crude definition that like other medievals would shoot me in the head if they heard me say that. But uh, there's more to it than that. But, um, but anyway, still, it's still a broad, a broad genre. You can see trends of things within that genre. But that, to me, says more about the kinds of stories that they were interested in than it does about like what it means to be to be a romance, but it means something quite definite to be a romance. Um, well, I say quite definite, as if anything in Lord Dunsany's stories was quite definite. Uh, perhaps not the right phrase to, to, to use. What does he seem to mean by romance? When we're told that she has taken off, Miss Cubbage, is taken off to the land of romance. What does that mean? Marta? Yeah, wonder, fable, myth, it's this, these, these other ideas. Look at how he juxtaposes the two, um, which is, as I said, is, 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 is quite clear. He starts off um, emphatically and squarely in the mundane world, right? <coughs> Page 24. Little upon her 18th birthday thought Miss Cubbage of number 12A, Prince of Wales Square, that before another year had gone its way, she would lose the sight of that unshapely oblong that was so long her home. That unshapely oblong that was so long her home. And, the, you know, the business about her father being elected by a thumping majority, right? It's just as, as mundane as can be. And then the dragon takes her. The Golden Dragon of Romance. The first full paragraph on 25. Out of the balcony of her father's house in Prince of Wales Square, the painted dark green balcony that grew blacker every year. That grew blacker every year. What, what, is, what are we alluding to? What is this image? What is he recalling? Anyone ever spent any time in London? Yeah, this, this soot. The air in London. Holy cow. Yeah, and it was worse uh, back then even than it is now. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, that, so he's, 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 he's speaking in physical, visual terms of the actual soot of London here. The painted dark green balcony that grew blacker every year. The dragon lifted Miss Cubbage and spread his rattling wings, and London fell away like an old fashion. And England fell away, and the smoke of its factories, and the round material world that goes humming round the sun, vexed and pursued by time, until there appeared the eternal and ancient lands of romance, lying low by mystical seas. So romance here associated with ancientry, mysticism, and the eternal. In contrast to the round material world that goes humming around the sun, vexed and pursued by time. 
vexed and pursued by time. Dang. Jordan? Yes. Yes, yes. It does have that sense of unrealism, which is why we can see here him describing the world of romance as being contrasted with that round clump of stuff that's circling around the sun, right? The regular mundane world. And to time as well. And instead, the eternal and ancient lands of romance. Yeah, it's, it's something outside of this world, outside of normal mundane experience. Um, look at the... I love the transition into the next sentence, into the next paragraph. You had not pictured Miss Cubbage stroking the golden head of one of the dragons of song with one hand idly. You had not pictured. Uh, what a bold transition. No, you're right. I hadn't pictured that. But you can introduce almost every paragraph of War Dunsany with you had not pictured. Um, but again, look at the connection again a little bit down that paragraph. And partly she still lived, and partly she was one with long ago, and with those sacred tales that nurses tell, when all their children are good, and evening has come, and the fire is burning well, and the soft pat-pat of the snowflakes on the pane is like the furtive tread of fearful things in old enchanted woods. You know, like spider idols and stuff. If at first she missed those dainty novelties among which she was reared, the old sufficient song of the mystical sea, singing of fairy lore, at first soothed and at last consoled her. Again, notice the contrast between, on the one hand, those dainty novelties among which she was reared, the mundane things and comforts of the world, and, on the other hand, the old sufficient song of the mystical sea singing of fairy lore. Right? These are the two sort of poles in between which she is, or rather, and she has been drawn from one to the other. Notice the connection between romance in this sense and and fairy tales and nursery tales, right? We're almost out of time. I will leave you with another awesome sentence. This is in The Probable Adventure of Three Literary Men while they're in the forest. Something so huge that it seemed unfair to man that it should move so softly, stalked splendidly by them, and only so barely did they escape its notice that one word ran and echoed through their three imaginations, if, if, if. Dang. Have a good spring break. All right, join us in the next class as we peep through the wonderful window, make a short stop at the city of Never, and take a cautious look at the horde of the Gibbelins. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.